This week's episode of the Help on the Way podcast, where we are featuring June 8th, 1994, from the Cal Expo Amphitheater in Sacramento, California. I am your co-host, The Game, here with my fellow co-hosts, Knob and Fig. And instead of doing some cheesy hello friends like we normally do, let's welcome in our amazing guest, David freaking Gans. David, welcome to the show. Hello. My, my, middle name, my middle name is actually Max, but we can go with your version for now. <laughs> All right. Uh, for those who don't know or not aware of David Gans, David is an American musician, uh, songwriter, music journalist, as well as a guitarist. Uh, he has uh, is the co-author of the book Playing in the Band, an oral and visual portrait of the Grateful Dead. Uh, he does the weekly syndicated Grateful Dead Hour, uh, which is where I first learned of you many, many yeah. moons ago on GD Radio, uh, as well as I then followed you over to to the Grateful Dead channel on Sirius XM, where you co-host uh, Tales from a Golden Road, as well as you do the, um, or have done, I guess, the Dead and Company um, pre- and uh, mid-show set break I show. Mean, dead Air. Yeah. Dead Air, yes. Yeah, um, that was a really fun thing to get to do these last three years. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really a lucky guy, I have to say. So, before we go into our Channel 6 News segment, we will, of course, start with our, I guess we're calling it, what shall we say segment, which <laughs> is our question and answer segment with our esteemed guest, David Gans. Uh, and Dave, uh, I'll kick off this portion. Uh, in 2000, uh, in your 2015 oral history, uh, this is all a dream we dream, your intro was as follows. You got turned on to the Grateful Dead by your older brother or by a classmate. You were given a concert tape or a vinyl copy of Working Man's Dead or a cassette of skeletons from the closet. You wore a pothead, probably, and you wore or became an acid head, or at least tried it. Uh, I know for me, that pretty much perfectly describes the way I got on the bus. Um <laughs> But how did you, yourself, David, get on this uh, wild and wonderful bus known as the Grateful Dead? Several of those phrases apply to me as well. I would, <laughs> in, uh, some, some to me, yeah. Well, I graduated high school in San Jose, California in 1970. And I, by then I had met up with a gentleman named Stephen Donnelly with whom uh, I had started a songwriting partnership. I started playing the guitar uh, in the spring of 1969 thanks to having an older brother who had a guitar and taught me some chords. Mm -hmm. So I was a, a, a musician, I think. I became a musician on that day when I started playing the guitar, and I was on this path of wanting to be a singer-songwriter, and I had my lyricist buddy with me and stuff, and we were roommates off and on and collaborators off and on, but there were, and he kept telling me I should go see The Grateful Dead. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, I, 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 there wasn't room for it in my little narrow universe for a variety of reasons. I've joked about it. My new book, by the way, is called Improvised Lives. It's a book of my photos and uh, stories, including this one, uh, that are more fleshed out. Oh. 
But he finally persuaded me to go and I went and it was that it was sort of a textbook case because we took a very, very large dose of LSD, jumped in a car with our, our friend Dennis Driver uh, as our designated driver. I recently was talking with Donnelly about this because uh, you know, we, we got together for a, a, a cup of tea after not seeing each other for many years. And I was uh, mentioning some of this stuff to him. And I, I said, I, I am assuming that Dennis didn't get high with us, right? And Stephen said, I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> so our designated driver may or may not have been as fucked up as we were. Well, you designated him as the driver. And that's, we'll, we'll that's leave it exactly. at that. It took it off of my plate. Yeah. Um, so we got to, we had engines. Well, I'm not going to get into the details, but we had car trouble and we got there late and the Sons of Champlin were already on. By the way, they changed their name, the band name to Yogi Flim for some reason. So we got there late. So we, we got wound up in the very last row of the balcony of Winterland. It was, must have been 150 degrees up there. Um, and But we got, you know, we had a place to sit and we watched the show. And we saw, I saw the new writers of the Purple Sage, most of which I didn't really understand, except they did stuff like, I think they did Hello, Mary Lou, and, you know, some familiar tunes. Mm -hmm. And then the Grateful Dead came on, and I was just blazing high uh, from this thing. And, and I generally did not have a super comfortable relationship with LSD in those days. I didn't, I, ne I needed to sort of do some sort of what you might call personal growth. Uh, and get my shit together before I could have a, a happier relationship with acid. But in those days, I took it anyway. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, it's so various, the, the Grateful Dead, they took the stage and it was really far away, as I say, because we were in the last row. But I got little bits of it. And uh, as I say, I ran into Donnelly recently and I asked him, I said, you know, I, what, what was it? After we went to that show, I said, what was it that made, how did I know that we were supposed to go to every show? He said, are you kidding me? The day after that first show in March, he said, you went to the record store and got every Grateful Dead thing you could find. And you just, you just started doing that instantly. And I didn't remember it quite that way, but it was, it doesn't surprise me that he told me that. So your first show was at Winterland? March, yes. March 5th, 1972 is a one-off uh, it was a benefit for uh, Indians, they said. Two-part two question. Tell us about Winterland, because we come up, you know, like we know it's a famous venue and closing of Winterland. And, you know, we come across the Dead Playing Winterland quite a lot in this random podcast that we do. Uh, but we don't know much about the venue. Can you, and maybe the audience doesn't know about the venue. Can you tell us about the venue? And then I guess as a follow-up, have you gone back or how often do you go back and listen to that first show if it's available? Uh, I'll, be, I'll answer the second question. I rarely do because I've never heard a really complete tape of it. And it's one of those things that I never, if I went around, if I, if I asked Charlie Miller right now, he could probably send me two or three different versions <laughs> of it from which I could hear the whole thing. Yeah. And I should someday, but it's just kind of not that important to me. Yeah. Um, that's to, not what it was about. Know, what is, oh, well, no, I should. I, it just, it's sort of like, that's funny. You, cause you guys ask and I go, damn, I don't know. I should probably ought to. <laughs> but I, I've listened to scraps of it here and there that were uh -huh. available back in the day. The more important thing is that I got it sufficiently that I, the next time they came to play, I went camped, me and Donnelly camped out and bought tickets at the San Jose box office and went to four shows in five days uh, at the Berkeley Community Theater in August of that year. 
And I Fran, was off and running. Yeah. Friends, if you are interested, I actually just posted a link to the uh, March 5th, 72 Winterland show Wait. from Wait the archive. And, and when you said that, I remembered I was supposed to tell you about Winterland. It was literally like an ice skating arena mm -hmm. and other performing arts thing. The first time I ever went to Winterland was when my dad took us to see the Coldstream Guards or whatever British marching bands. He was a big fan of that sort of thing. So he brought mm -hmm. us there and we were in the balcony watching these drill teams in, you know, red uh, English... Uh, army uniforms and those fuzzy hats and shit doing their weapons and, you know, quite a different scene presenting than arms and all that the grateful yeah. dead yeah <laughs> but, but it was the, when i was in the ticket business the capacity of the place was 5400 which probably wow. meant it got up to 7000 at peak times uh, people will tell you that bill graham's people could sell a, a you know sell tickets a couple of times and overstuff the place. I, I'm uh, innocent of any facts on that, but <clears> I've heard the stories told. But I got to see a lot of shows there. Uh, the, nice. I went to, you know, the the uh, didn't go New Year's Eve '72, but I went in uh, the other shows. Two two of the three shows in like December of '72, and I saw the uh, I think all three in November of '73. And then when they started, when they played there in 74, I think I made it to three of four. And I've lost, you know, I don't remember them off the top of my head, but I start, I got to see them in the February 74 run. And I got to see three of the five in the October 74 run. And I got to see probably eight of the nine or nine of the 10 shows they did in Winterland in 77. Oof. And that's kind of like, yeah, man, yeah. I am a lucky mofo. <laughs> yes, you that. are. Yeah, and, and onward. I I I do have a sob story about Winterland, though, and that is that I did not get to go to the closing of Winterland show twelve thirty one seventy eight. I was I I was I made it back from my work assignment in Florida, but I was too sick to actually get up and go, and uh, so I gave up my my tickets. And my friends called me and said, "We got a seat for you in the balcony, man. Come on down." And I had already called Eileen and given up my ticket, you know, to yeah. somebody else. And I just felt so sorry for myself. And I wound up going over to Bob Menke's house and watching it with him in his bedroom. Uh, but you know, I got to see a lot of great shows at yeah. Winterland. I went to a lot. I think I made it to all of the October '78 shows at Winterland. So I have no complaints, man. I got, I, I'm a lucky man because I grew up seeing the dead in the Bay Area in the 70s. Definitely. <laughs> Nob, you have a question? Sure. I'll jump to the next question. Um, I guess this is a, a two-parter, but just speaking to that, do you, do you have a, a favorite Grateful Dead song? I always answer that with Dark Star because it's <laughs> like a universe of songs. Of um, course. There, it's, otherwise, you know, it's, it's always one of those sort of conundrums. How can you sum up the Grateful Dead in one song or five yeah. songs? Because yeah. they, 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 they covered so much ground stylistically and so right. many of their things are one of a kind. You know, there's only one estimated profit and there's only mm -hmm. one weather report suite. You know, and there's only one Shakedown Street. The Grateful Dead didn't do like six different disco type things. They did the one. 
Yeah. So you can't, you know, you can't, there's no cross section of Grateful Dead music. We tried to do it on the boxed set of So Many Roads, which, you know, it, that I think has been uh, regarded by many as as good a cross section as you're going to get. But so the Grateful Dead covered so much ground. There were so many facets to them that it's just impossible to sum it up. So right. I, I instead invoke Dark Star because Dark Star is sort of the epitome of the Grateful Dead. It's compositionally mm -hmm. unique and it is a launching pad for improvisation. And improvisation is the most important hallmark of the Grateful Dead, even more than the songwriting, which is a close second. Sure. Um, speaking of the, the songwriting, how would you say the music of the dead, your interest in, in that music, influenced the way you write your own music? Because you're also a songwriter. Um, yeah. Uh, well, they, the Grateful Dead really just opened my world up in so many ways. I was, I, I, and before the Grateful Dead, I was listening to a lot of singer-songwriter stuff. I was way into Cat Stevens and Elton John and Jackson sure. Brown and <clears throat> CSNY and, you know, the other stuff. We were a little bit dismissive of John Denver because he sold a lot of records, but <laughs> early. Sell out. I was part of, well. Look, man, I was a teenager and I was as self No, I remember. Oh, yeah. Be. Oh, yeah. But I, I, on the other hand, I already had a, a narrative voice of my own. I had a songwriting person, you know, a, a, a collection of stuff and a, some impetus of my own and got enough gigs where, like at coffee houses where I could play those Cat Stevens songs and then play my own songs. And so from the beginning... I, I mixed original music and my own stuff, and that was before I ever heard The Grateful Dead. And then when I heard The Grateful Dead, it it made they eventually taught me that you can do all of that, give equal weight to your interpretations of other stuff as long as it furthers your own narrative with your own mm. stuff and jam it all together with improvisation. And so I adopted their ethos of every performance being a real-time, spontaneous experience, taking into account everything we know and that we've done before, but with no particular commitment to perfection. Yeah. That's interesting. Right on. That is interesting. Um, I'm going to jump around just a little bit. Um, yeah. you, you have a song called Like a Dog, which is a, a collaboration with Robert Hunter. Mm -hmm. how, how did that come about? Uh, it was a miracle. Uh, it, it came about, I forget the exact thing, it was 2000-something. I, I have met Robert Hunter. I interviewed him starting in 1977, and I interviewed him a few other times in the 80s. Um, he was the sort of guy that would sort of run hot and cold with you. I'd run into him, and he, you know, he'd he'd be fine. And then every once in a while, he, you know, he wouldn't answer an email here and there. But for the most part, uh, once email became available, Hunter sort of was accessible enough to have at least an epistolary relationship with him. And I had a fairly pleasant one for the most part. Um, because he didn't really want to be interviewed per se, but he would at least answer my questions in email. And in nine, after disappearing for various stretches of time, he, he came out as a big participant 
in the online community that the Grateful Dead started on DeadNet. Hmm. When they went online in the mid-90s, they started a conferencing system, very similar to the one that I have called my home online uh, since the mid-80s myself, the Well. Well Well.com is my home. There's a small Grateful Dead community there as well as conversations about a million other things, and we would welcome you checking it out. But Hunter started the thing that wound up being called DeadNet Central, and he uh, opened it up to people. And uh, communities formed then that are still friendships that are ex- you know exist now. But he also started posting journals there and interacting with people, and he posted works of episodic fiction and epic poems and things like that. So DeadNet Central became his, and I think the online... I, I think the uh, URL has to do with uh, hunterarchive.com or something like that. Now, a lot of it, if not all of it, is still available online. But he interacted very, very heavily with people at that time. And I, I had a little bit of knowledge because I was on the well and had been on the well for 10 years. And Hunter knew about that and, and had heard about the well and from various people and various members of the Grateful Dead had looked at the well here and there. Uh, he was, you know, I had a little bit of a conversation with him about that stuff. And in some of my advice he took and some of it he didn't. So I that's really the basis of my relationship at the time that email arrived. I got to a music festival in Michigan. Uh, and I checked into my hotel in the afternoon and I looked at my email before going out to the festival. I had an opening slot on the opening day of a festival. Nice. But I checked my email before I went out there, and it was there was an email from Robert Hunter with a file attached to it that was a song mm-hmm. lyric. And he Whoa. said, David, I've been reading your online journals with interest, and I thought you might like this. Cool. Needless to freaking say. I yeah, that's a, that's a big email. Yeah, that's what I've gotten in your life. So, so <laughs> I, I, went out, I went out and played the gig, which, by the way, I played to like maybe a couple of dozen people, all of whom were vendors, because I was the first act on the first day of a weekend, of a new weekend festival, <laughs> and nobody seemed to have arrived to actually attend the show yet. But I didn't care because I was going back to my hotel room to write a song with Robert Hunter, <laughs> which I did. Yeah. Uh, there, can I tell? There's more of this story. This is this is going to be like a four hour episode if you guys let me keep doing this. But but uh, I took the, I wrote I got back to the hotel and I wrote some some music to go with the song, you know the lyric that he sent me and I felt really pretty good about the structure of it and I was on my way to Nelson Ledges, Ohio, to play uh, with before and with the Dark Star Orchestra at a weekend festival. And I was friends with the Dark Star Orchestra, had been for several years. And so when I got there, I wrote the lyrics out on like shirt cardboards or whatever, stuck, stuck them together with gaffer's tape, and I went around to each individual member of the band and showed them the song. And... When my uh, solo set came up, 
I played a couple of songs and then I invited them to join me. And I, I had shown this song to five people, I think it was, but we had never played it. I had only ever played it all the way through back at the hotel once or twice. Mm. And as I was showing it to them, the Dark Star Orchestra friends got up with me on stage and we played that song. And it went very, very well. And we just lurched right on into, I mean, went smoothly on into Bertha and I forget mm -hmm. what else. But it was a, a magical thing for me to have shown the sign. It speaks to the talent and the skill of those guys. You know, yeah. I mean, they were excellent musicians. And this was, I believe, in, when John Cadlesic was in the band, Scott Larned was still alive, and John uh, uh, um, Rob Eaton played guitar. And either either uh, uh, or both of the drummers played, but I can't remember. But it was David, a really do you, amazing. Do you recall moment. in that in that amazing moment? Do you recall if if you uh, went into an improv improvisational section for that first playing of of that song, like a dog? No, I don't think we did. I think it was way too structured for that. Gotcha. I mean, I was lucky to have gotten through it. Gotten I through. Maybe, <laughs> I don't. I don't have to go back and review it. There might have been a moment where we stretched out the the two chords. I'm. There's another thing about that song that I'm very proud of compositionally. Mm. I have not encountered somebody else who built a groove around the F F chord and the F sharp minor chord alternating it does a very interesting thing and i'm sort of proud of it so i might have asked them to jam a little bit on that before we moved on but rolling on into something else was a safe way to get out of a completely unrehearsed song but wait there's one more thing i have to tell you about this i took this this recording with me home and I was still doing my live my show at KPFA Dead to the World back in those days and I was proud enough of this recording of this new song that I played it on my show on KPFA Robert Hunter heard it liked my musical arrangement this was in the days before you could just you know email him an mp3 <laughs> of it so he heard the song on the radio. He wow. sent me an email the next day with another song lyric on it. Wow. And so that was lightning struck twice in my creative life. Um, and it, it's kind of hard to top that. <laughs> Very cool. So you mentioned KPFA. And that's where I want to take the conversation next, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, I am a big radio head. I um, nice. grew up in central Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. uh, literally listened to uh, Howard Stern, fell in love with terrestrial radio, the business of radio. Uh, and I first discovered you with the Grateful Dead Hour on GratefulDeadRadio.net. Uh, and then I discovered the amazing KPFA Grateful Dead marathons, um, mm -hmm. which I think have been going on for 10, 15 years now. Oh, 30 some. Uh, oh, 30 we started doing them in 1986. See, wow. this is this is the online archives versus the actual archives that I don't see. So that's incredible. Um, so first off, um, I guess my question is... Um, Anything fun or exciting you can share about the 2024 uh, KPFA Grateful Dead Marathon? Uh, and two, any, um, any fun marathon stories you could possibly share? 
Oh, man. Well, it, it all rolls together after a while. Mm -hmm. But we've had... Uh, it, it started with... I, I was doing the KFOG Deadhead Hour. Mm -hmm. And I forget exactly how I got invited to help with things at KPFA. But they were doing a live broadcast of Greek theater... A Grateful Dead at the Greek Theater, which was accomplished by, I believe, telephone lines back in those days. We're awesome. talking 1986. Sure. And and uh, there was a I I I, so I got invited to participate, and it involved co-hosting from backstage at the Greek Theater while Mary Tilson uh, fundraised for KPFA at the other end. So that was, I think, my first contact with KPFA was. Uh, being plunked down in the middle of a fundraiser, and after that, I just sort of got uh, adopted into that thing. And I, and I was like happy to put Grateful Dead music on the radio. Sure, I was already doing that at KFOG, which, by the way, ended in 1990 because of the radio business. And that's mm -hmm. when I brought my weekly show over to K KPFA and joined them as a weekly contributor. But in the in the from '86 on, I was part of occasional things. They they asked me to do an evening fundraiser, sometime in maybe the fall of '86. I don't remember, but I that brought me into contact with Gary Lambert, who was another Ooh. radio guy, uh, and a big deadhead. And I, I don't I don't his timeline and mine overlap in ways that I don't remember specifically. Because it feels like we've always been partners, you know. Mm -hmm. But he worked for he he was a broadcaster and a promoter. He worked for Bill Graham at times, and he was just a giant freaking enthusiast of this stuff and a huge deadhead. So we wound up working together on Grateful Dead related broadcasts on KPFA, and that led to increasingly increasing airtime for fundraisers we might do like a three-hour evening thing and then it went to an eight-hour thing and it's like oh what the hell let's just take over the goddamn dial for the day <laughs> and it, there literally it sort of became well 12 hours well if we're gonna do that we might as well go till one in the morning and for years the kpfa marathon was 9 a.m to 1 a.m and that was was 16 hours and it 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 was always fun, always inspiring. We got to have a lot of live music along the way. We recently, because the, now I think we're going to stop at midnight because the last hour was so deadly uh, quiet on the phones and because I just turned 70. Thank you very much. <laughs> but well, uh, but the, the marathon has been so great. We, we've had, you know, we'd, we'd have like one... Marathon, uh, Andy Logan from the Grateful Guitars Foundation brought the alligator over for us to look at, and he brought this Jerry, this D Martin D28 that Jerry Garcia had owned. He was bringing these guitars over that his foundation owns and that they lend out to musicians all the time. And he brought them over, and I got to sit there and play Box of Rain on this Jerry Garcia guitar in the on my own radio show oh, there cool. on kpfa that was a really sweet moment but at, later that day peter rowan came by and told us amazing stories and played a couple of songs so that kind of thing i i i'd have a hard time uh you know singling out any particular marathon because there's so much fun we get people from all over the planet contributing to the station 
we play all this music, I've gradually over time been surrendering it or begging Tim Lynch to take over <laughs> more responsibility for it. Uh, and and so we still collaborate on them, and, and I was still there for most of the time at, at KPFA, and it's really, really fun. And I think the date of our next one is March 2nd, but I don't have it. Let me, let me look. I think that is the date. Let me double-check that. Is it? Uh, yes, it's March 2nd. I'm going to be adding that to my calendar so I don't miss Absolutely. it. Absolutely. It, it is something I literally look forward to every year. And, but you uh, asked what I have planned for it, and I have no idea because <laughs> there's so goddamn much going on between now and then. Tim, by the way, who's now the primary host of, who took over Dead to the World when I retired yes. from that in November of 2015, he's now the primary host of the marathon and i'm uh co-host and kibitzer but um he is now the station manager at calex over on the university of california campus so he's got a full-time job too we will will convene in the nearish future and start talking about it but we'll plan a bunch of shows of grateful dead music and i will uh We'll start talking about who we can get to come in and play live. And then there's the possibility that nobody's going to get to come in and play live because there's sort of bullshit going on with KPFA uh, with regard to uh, insurance and who can come into the station and things like that. So there's a chance that we may be doing the whole damn thing remotely, which I'm willing to do because I've been playing. I mean, I'm, I now am a remote host for yeah. uh, mo most of my life. Well, you, you do dead air remote with Gary Lambert, right? Yes, we did. What a great yeah. gig that was. I mean, yeah. to do it from home. We got to do one. I did one. He went to a bunch of shows and did them from stage. I only went to the one, oh, the second right. to last one at Oracle. But I had the greatest time. Are you kidding? I sit yeah, there you guys were awesome together. together. That was so Thank fun. you. I'll yeah. tell you a couple things about that. Gary Lambert is the easiest guy to work with. You could yeah. possibly Total imagine. professional. He's brilliant. He's sweet as the day is yeah. long. And he knows incredible amounts of stuff. Yep. And it's, it's sort of, I have the easiest job in the world because <laughs> he's usually got something to say. Yes. So I only have to pitch in after if I have additional information. So I have the easiest gig in the, in the team because he's so good at what he does. And uh, the other fact is that we recorded, we did a lot of those interviews live in the first year, and then we mm -hmm. gradually moved to always pre-recording them. In any of those, live and pre-recorded, we only stopped to edit tape four times. Awesome. Two of them were just because of technical glitches, and two of them were editorial things that were requested by the guests. But my point is that, and coupled with the fact that we never once made a list of things to discuss, <laughs> I'm telling you guys that, that the improvisational uh, chat team of Lambert and Gans is just unbeatable. And it was that's how easy it is working with him, and that's how great all of our guests were. So it brings up a question. I think this one, this might be the last question of the interview portion, but we'd love to have you stick around for the other topics that we'll discuss today. Um, was there ever a time where you guys were, you know, keyed into Dead and & Company and you thought to yourself, man, I wish I was at that show. 
And then the follow-up question is, did Gary Lambert agree if, if you did talk to him about that? <laughs> Excuse me. I don't know why. I just started coughing. Um, that's not a real question that came up because I'm so happy to be watching them at home. The Nugs, mm-hmm. Nugsnet audio feed, my clip speakers, uh, we've, you know, we've got a slightly bigger TV set in recent years just because we're home so much since the uh, pandemic started. So my situation here was kind of unbeatable. Yeah. Going to the show was a great pleasure, but I, I, the I'm at you know I'm I'm not playing the geezer card really, but it's just okay to be watching it from home. This the what's involved in going to the shows. I, I I would have been willing to do it if it had been more convenient, but it was okay with me to watch them from home. I was very happy totally. to be the one that I saw. I saw less music at the one that I saw live than mm-hmm. I saw from all the ones I watched at home. Mm-hmm. Because there was so much other wonderful stuff to do. Every time I turned around, there was somebody to hug and some schmoozing to do in between right. sets. and then. Literally, you know, you can't move around a place like that without running smack into members of your tribe because you belong to 20 or 30 different tribes. And there they all are. And it was it was impossibly wonderful. But it was okay to be watching the rest of them from home. Yeah. Gary, Gary was is much more into going out there and doing it. He's out there watching LPGOB till four in the morning and stuff. Uh, you know, he's a much more of a boulevardier than I ever was. So uh, he'll he went to a lot more shows live and goes to a lot more shows live. I did go oh. to see Bobby and the uh, Wolf Bros, the Wolf Pack, and the Stamford Symphony. Ooh. That was oh, we, we that, talked that about that very show. Good show. Great. Yeah. That was great. Man. I love that. There was a really good Dark Star on that one, I believe. Everything about it. The earlier songs were weren't as uh, expansive and weren't as improvisational. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but as the thing went on, the, the it got more interesting and more interactive. And I was really, really impressed with the um, uh, with the. Sorry, the smoke alarm is going off in the kitchen. It's just, it's all good. Uh, I, the, the way that they really did the thing that Bob Weir uh, set out to do. You could yeah. watch, by the way, the last interview of the Dead Air series for this year mm-hmm. is with Bob Weir. And you can see that on the Nugsnet channel. It's also uh, uh, the second thing down on my uh, DGAN's channel on YouTube, if you want to go there. But Bobby talks about what his aim was, what he wants to do with the orchestra and how he facilitates improvisation among larger groups of musicians than used to be thought humanly possible. Mm-hmm. So it's just a treat to watch it happening and right. and and I think they're incredibly good at it. Well, I know I certainly agree with you that Couch Tour is pretty nice. <laughs> compared oh, yeah, we're going to be uh, super anti-Couch Tour here. <laughs> Uh, um is uh is is pretty pretty nice compared to actually going to a venue um so first off thank you uh, for all of the um 
not only FM content you still provide to all the FM stations, but for literally being that pre-show yeah. and set break content for the deadhead community. And, and during uh, a time, during the pandemic, you know, like, like you and Gary were a huge part, you know, I'll speak personally, but I think my co-host and maybe the community agrees of that weird pandemic, you know, uh, era um, where we wanted to see shows, but we couldn't. Um, or, you know, it just became more accessible to see shows on your couch. So thank you well, for I, that. I appreciate you saying that. Gary got to actually be part of that couch thing. He and David Lemieux did that thing that the dead, that Grateful Dead, you know, uh, Dead Yeah, Net the was, Shakedown was Streams. Doing. Shakedown Yeah, uh, that, so Gary got some FaceTime on there and his couch yeah. became famous on that. Right. Yeah. Um, when everything shut down, our... Uh, Tales from the Golden Road was in reruns, and I don't hmm. remember how many weeks we were in reruns before the management started saying, well, let's do, we need to have some fresh content. So Gary and I started doing hosted music shows where we oh, pick out right. stuff and, and talk about the introduced pieces and stuff. So that was the sort of interim. That's what uh, I was thinking of, yeah. Canned, but original but new version of tales until they figured out how to do everything remotely mm -hmm. so now the model is actually the coolest fucking thing it's what i've been doing all along i started hosting it from home using an old telephone technology called isdn yep uh occasionally they would let me use this thing called a comrex which is an ip based thing which you can plug into any internet socket and connect directly to the mothership and that's like the size of a football and in fact it's the sort of thing that they use in football games for like you know ringside reporting through the wireless so they gave me one of those and, and that meant i could do the show from wherever i went and i could take it with me on tour and do it from backstage at a festival and things like that um when the pandemic happened I, but at, during that time for all those pre-pandemic years gary would go into the studio in new york city the engineer would be in the studio in new york city and an intern would be in the studio in new york city screening the calls in the same room so i was the remote guy once the pandemic thing happened in a year or so, I forget how long into it, and they finally got it figured out, everybody was remote. They gave Gary one of the same kind of units that I have. So wherever he was, which was Queens most of the time, he was doing the show. We'd have an engineer that was somewhere else, either you know near D.C. where his day job was, or near New York where his day job was, or in Nashville where the satellite thing was, or we'd have a, you know, and then the screener could be somewhere else. So our entire thing was being done remotely, and it turned that was really, really fun, and it turned out to be a pretty efficient way to do things, because in the course of all of that, Zoom became a, a, a thing for everybody, so we could actually stay in touch with each other while we're hosting the show in the audio domain. We can have visual contact with each mm -hmm. other on Zoom. That was really fun because we do that, you know, kill me now sign at each other once every three weeks or so. But mostly it was just kind of like, okay, you next, you know, and and emphasizing and stuff. Mostly we just use it to cue each other. But it, it's we it, it's a, a, a really, really fun thing to do. And we have it down in a pretty cool way. 
a, you know, except occasionally, like we last week, we or the show before this, the uh, we were together in Arizona using Gary's Comrex, and our internet went out where we were. So Tails went off the air entirely for about five minutes while we got our shit together. Uh, and then we went back on the air and finished our show. But that's a very, very rare thing. First of all, it's not that often that we're together in the same place. Mm-hmm. And it's very rare that we're together in the same place and something goes fatally wrong for the feed altogether. So the final question that I'm going to ask that's actually not on the sheet uh, but has to do with uh, live streaming. Um, any chance you could possibly share if you have any 2024 dead ahead pre-show or set break content streams coming up? I know um, I don't even think streams have been officially announced for that, but I'm sure inquiring deadheads want to know. I have nothing to tell you, neither Nugs. Nugs has not said anything about what they're doing, let alone whether we'll be part of it. There is a possibility that Gary and I might actually go to Mexico on Sirius, a Sirius XM mission, which is kind of mind-blowing to me. Um, I'm As a but, longtime Sirius XM subscriber... That kind of would surprise me too, but if you, that happens, <laughs> absolutely go to Mexico on their dime. <laughs> I, I'm we're waiting for word on that, but I, I, if I knew anything, I wouldn't be allowed to tell you anyway because we just hired the hands here, and it's a, very often in that kind of stuff. It's there's a lot of last minute things, just because of the way the business goes. A lot of times contracts aren't signed, and we, we, our. We're like, we, our thing is so conditional on so many other things. Sure. That we very often don't get the word that it's actually happening. I have not ever been sorry to have held the time open for Nugs, though. I've enjoyed all, every collaboration I've ever done with Nugs. I love the people over there. And it's just a, a treat to be able to do it. And again, Lambert is a perfect partner because we are similar enough that our styles, you know, are, are interlocked nicely and we're different enough that, you know, it doesn't get boring. And he knows everything. So it's uh, it, it's easy and fun. And we're also gifted with amazing people to talk to. Well, Nugs, if you happen to be listening to this podcast... No, give, give no no lobbying, man. Give oh, the people God. what they want. Give do the not lobby them, Brad. <laughs> I had nothing to do with this. I, 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 I we am, know that Brad is a longtime listener of our show, and whatever we say, <laughs> he does. Um, I'm just inserting this disclaimer that I am continuing my Zen attitude of waiting for something good to happen. Well, hopefully that's something good is hosting the pre and mid show <laughs> content for the dead ahead wait, in wait, uh, we January. Stopped, we stopped doing the pre a while back. I think the third I, season we they that was too there was I too missed much. the pre. I missed well, the pre shows. I, I enjoyed it too, but here's the reason why. Because it involved people on stage paying attention to what was going on, keeping yes. one eye out on when the band was heading for the stage. 
Yeah. That involved yeah. me and Gary doing our schmooze with whatever we were doing while keeping an eye on the uh, an eye out for a text from somebody on stage saying the band is on the move or whatever. And it, it all was like kind of fraught. And uh, so they just decided that was and, and I, it's OK with me, too, because we, we got to focus on the fun part, which was watching the first set and doing our wrap up of the first set, which became part of their free preview for set two. So it, it was it just, it, you know, fundamentally, it, I, it, I understood why uh, they didn't want to do it. They didn't think it was worth the um, it was a lot of trouble to ask people to go to who had really really important other stuff to do on stage ultimately well this will be another one of these times where i will lobby if uh <laughs> we do need to hire somebody just to be on stage just to send that text uh, i am av <laughs> i am available uh i do need i do what about need the podcast man i can oh. i can i can work remote um oh. <laughs> You know, you're on your uh, own. You're on your own, kid. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, please forget you knew my name. <laughs> so, um, we could literally ask questions all night, but we should probably move on to our next two segments. Uh, of course, we still haven't even talked about the news. <laughs> I know. Nope. Um, what? So, <laughs> our wonderful Channel Six news segment. Oh, uh, I thought you said noose. No, oh, no, 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 no. That's a very different That's kind of podcast. North Jersey accent coming out. <laughs> Ouch. Uh, thankfully, I shouldn't say thankfully, but um, on this holiday week, we really only do have one bullet point on our Channel 6 News segment this week, and that is the wonderful Phil Lesh has announced a brand new project called Dark Starathon. Dark Starathon. That, no, that is not some funny joke we'd make at the end of the show <laughs> about a podcast platform we're not on. Uh, Phil has launched the Dark Starathon, uh, and truthfully, we all of us really don't know much about it yet. Um, I think what we do know is that it is a separate YouTube channel, the Dark Starathon channel, uh, and what Phil has described this as is a living and breathing Dark Star. Um, a dark star that pauses but never ends, um, where each band will pick up where the last band has left off, um, and that he promises to make this journey weird. So, yeah. So, not only has Phil decided that he's going to get a rival podcast started up against us, but now uh, he has decided he's going to go to YouTube and 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 taunt us with his Dark Star on channel. Um, but no, in all seriousness, I think it sounds pretty neat. Um, it does, yeah. I, um, we were just speaking of the pandemic. Um, the pandemic really brought out a lot of those um, music collaboration videos where everybody was remote. Um, I even think Phil did one. Um, yeah, I forget the song. Was it Terrapin? It might have been something. I'm going. Else. Having not looked, I'm going to say Ripple. It, it was something of the sort where everybody was doing different roles, all and all the videos were combined, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And and that the pandemic was was the start of that. Um, and I loved it. And it just seems like um, this 
It says each band. I'm not sure yeah. what each band, who the bands will be, et cetera, et cetera. I'm doubt Phil even knows everything at this point. But um, just that concept, I think, is really neat. Um, yeah. And it will be interesting to see where that ends up. Yeah. And the um, technology's there, and he's always been at the forefront of, you know, using new technologies to uh, enhance the sounds. So let's, oh my let's, God. Yeah. let's hear hey. the Dark Starathon. Bring it on. Bring it on. Bring it on. Always, uh, yeah. Maybe um, in March, we'll listen to the KDFA Grateful Dead Marathon, and then we'll move right into the Dark Starathon. It'll be just a couple <laughs> days of just Grateful just Dead. A thons. 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 Now, now, now I'm questioning <laughs> your pen. I'm questioning your penmanship over there. It's KPFA. Oh, what did Ooh. I say? What did I say? Ooh. You just lost the job of hosting this podcast. Yeah, you're you're not going to Mexico, bro. Sorry, my my. Every time I do something schmucky like that, I just say, "Once a copy editor, always a copy editor." (laughs) No, I appreciate the edits. Um, Moving on to our main event this week is June eighth, nineteen ninety four, at the Cal Expo Amphitheater in Sacramento, California. This was a Rex Foundation benefit show. Uh, and you know what? Let me just dive right into set one so we can start our reviews. Uh, set one opened up with Mississippi Half Step into Walking Blues. Then we got Peggy O, me and my uncle, Big River, Staggerly, Cassidy, and then a Don't Ease Me In. Fig, what were your thoughts on set one of June 8th, 94? Yeah, thanks a lot. I liked set one. Actually, I liked the show quite a lot. Um, I was a little hesitant going into the show. Um, all that gets passed down to us uh, on the archive is an odd, so it's an audience recording. Uh, however, it was a great sounding odd. I really did like this odd uh, pretty much from start to finish. There was great separation of instruments. The low end was a little muddy, but you could still hear Phil doing his thing. Um, I wrote Gang Vinny Rejoice because it was quite the Vinny show, uh, and he was everywhere. He was very high in the mix, and um, and especially in Half Step, uh, you know, that really cool stuff. Uh, the, the, one of the great things about audience recordings rather than soundboards is you get to hear the crowd reactions, and it really helps you, you know, kind of propel yourself, you know, into the show. And so the crowd reacted nicely to this opener, and I was really liking it too. Vinny does this really interesting uh, piano, like a saloon sounding piano solo at first, which was really cool, got me into the mood. The Rio Grandio section was very pleasant, and we get Vinny switching to the synth for that one with these angelic sounds. It was really cool. Um, yeah, um, and, and Jerry had a very pleasant solo there at the end. We go to Walking Blues, and this one had a great thumping pulse uh, led by mm-hmm. Phil. This is actually pretty fast Walking Blues. Maybe it's a Running Blues. Um, nice. I thought Bobby did uh, kind of an Elvis impression on vocals, but it, I mean, really good. And Jerry had this uh, high gain, almost distorted slide solo, which I found really good. And and the crowd goes wild. I guess Vinny, I wrote, Vinny does a chopstick solo, because I guess he was just using his index fingers to, to bang on the piano. But the crowd <laughs> loved it, and it was really cool to hear. Um, Bobby uh, did a solo, I think, but he was kind of just too far back in the mix to really hear. So if any qualms I have about this uh, mix, it was Bobby was a little too far back. Peggy O, I wrote, was a nice jaunt tonight. Uh, Jerry's solo was as bittersweet as the song is, and I really liked Jerry's uh, vocals that night. 
Uh, well, vocals sounded great um, on Peggio and throughout the night, really. We get into Uncle into Big River um, for uh, Bobby busts out the acoustic and the crowd just goes wild for it, <laughs> which I love. It's such a rock star move to be like, I'm changing instruments. Everyone's like, yeah, he changed instruments. Um, I, I liked Uncle. I liked River. Uh, not much to talk about. Stagger Lee, I uh, wrote a good swagger on the stagger. Jerry was very energetic and a very fun vocal delivery. A uh, real good pocket there by the Rhythm Devils on Stagger Lee. And we get into Cassidy. Things start culminating in the instrumental. There was a good breakdown. Uh, but then all of a sudden, Bobby jumps ship uh, into the Flight of the Seabirds, uh, I guess, chorus. Um, I don't know why, because mm. they were they were going to something. And all of a sudden, just like, you know, ripcord, um, Flight of the Seabirds. So it's kind of an unsettling ending to an otherwise really good version of Cassidy. And they ended set one with uh, Don't Ease Me In, which uh, was a really good boogie-woogie version. It was a little bit disjointed uh, to end set one on, the, on with that Don't Ease. Uh, but overall, it was a really good uh, set one. And what I'm going to do now is do something I never thought I would do. Is I'm going to kick it over to David Gans to get uh, David's impression. Um, oh, Dave good. I was going to critique your critique. <laughs> <laughs> no, we only critique the Grateful Dead back in history on this well, podcast. Well, I, I, I have to take issue with rock star move. Um, what, what's to change instruments, change acoustics, and changing crowd goes wild? It, the crowd, it's not his fault that the crowd went wild. That's not why he changed instruments. He wanted to play the acoustic oh, guitar on those oh, songs. But it's, it's, <laughs> to, to even joke about that, it's just kind of, it, it's like, to, that. They, I, it's funny, I haven't thought about this stuff in years, but there was this whole cheesy Bobby vibe that was going around in various circles of deadhead to, you know, and I always thought that was kind of, you know, unfair, but it it just was the the deadhead culture had its own little things about every band member, what their personalities were, you know. Yeah. So uh, it's just it to to imply that there is any of that on Bob's part seemed. I mean, no, he, I he did admit I'm... he he did admit he's the Mister Showbiz of the group. I mean, I have him on tape saying it in you know into my interview, Mike, a number of times over the years. But I just to, he put the acoustic guitar on because he wanted to play it on those songs and the. It's, you know, he didn't do it to get a reaction and he didn't take it off and put the electric back on to get a reaction either. He just changed guitars to, to play a couple of songs as he did at every, almost every show in that latter era. Certainly I'm thinking like, from like 93 on, there was at least one song or one pair of songs in the first set where Bobby would play some acoustic. It's just, it but was part of the- he did smash the guitar to be a rock star. What? He did smash the guitar to be a rock star. When? I, I was just doing a joke. Just that's hyperbole. <laughs> I'm just I don't know. I I, 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 we're getting into you know get off my lawn territory here, so let's move on. I, I remember I was at this show, and I remember being worried about Jerry that whole run. He was white as a sheet his hair was long and he was kind of slightly tilted a couple of degrees and i really it really looked like and he was not entirely there at various times well i i had, don't know where i put that notepad but i made a couple of notes as this was going by and he just he missed a few cues here and there 
you know, he was he was faltering. He was slowly dying. I mean, it took him another year to die, but he was he was not a healthy guy, and he wasn't taking care of himself. And I, you know, it's weird because after you never, but part you never really would like count him out because he was amazingly resilient despite his frailties. And in the fall, he delivered some pretty amazing performances, you know, 10, 194 off the top of my head. So yeah. he, it was, this wasn't his last stand, but it was a time when I looked at him and went, oh my God. And then later, uh, later in the year, at the end of the year, when they, you know, uh, he was also in a pretty weak state. And I, it seemed like, I really felt like the last, really good run of shows i saw the grateful dead do was cal expo in may of 93 mm. and jerry's participation was was sputtered here and there at various times and i remember having a conversation with phil lesh and i think it was december of 93 in which he said something like look the rest of us have all agreed we're going to give it everything we got and we're going to be there for him if he shows up to play mm. And that's the, you know, it was, that was the thing. Jerry was sort of disengaged in, in, in a lot of ways. And it showed on stage. You guys noted it in the, you know, the sort of clattering into Donies and things like that. I would have to go back and listen to Cassidy to, to decide whether it was, uh, you know, Bobby ended the jam at a perfect peak. Or if Bobby cut the jam off at a perfect peak, you know, <laughs> it just depends on musically, you know, whether it made sense or not. And he's been guilty of, of cutting him off here and there. But, um, it, you know, in those years, you know, and that kind of stuff happened more sort of in the cocaine years. I think this was more like uh, it was probably it was probably him. It was probably where it was supposed to go. I don't know. Um, Nob, any thoughts for set one? I have plenty of thoughts on set one. Uh, all the time, always. Um, <laughs> I generally... Okay, so we've had three <laughs> 1994 yes. shows in the last month of doing this podcast, which may have melted my brain. Um, but I must say that I honestly think that this is the strongest of the three. We had the one from December, and I think we had one from, like, March. I don't remember what the third one was anymore. <laughs> I don't know. But I, I generally was pleasantly surprised with this one. I think the first thing that jumps out to me is just looking at this set list. If you swap Samba in the Rain in set two for, like, Dear Mr. Fantasy or something, this could be a Brent-era set list. It's very... Yeah. In this era you get a lot of focus on the new songs because that's what they were excited about and that's what they were interested in this show the only song that's from the 90s is is samba in the rain and the cover of i fought the law in the encore it is a very interesting observation and before we before you go on i need to add yeah. that i in i i remembered being you know worried about jerry when i was there but i also felt that it was better uh when i listened back to it the other day yeah i felt it was better than i recalled it being and yeah this lurchy, is a good one there were fewer lurchy parts 
And without listening to the other two shows you guys have, have for context, I'm guessing this probably is the best one of the lot. You know, yeah. they were all good it, it, in a very surprising way, each in their own way. Um, I think 94 gets a bad rap. Um, and we've had some 94 clunkers. We've had some 93 clunkers, too. Um, but, you know, randomly, I thought that these three 94 shows were awesome. I wouldn't say awesome, but I would say I, I thought they were all. Well, they were... There, there are some strong playing in all, all three of the shows. This is the one I like the most. And, and to your point, uh, uh, David, my, my dad is a big deadhead. That's, that's where my love of this band comes from. And he started taking my mom to dead shows in, in 93 when they were dating. And whenever the two of them talk about seeing dead shows in that time, the first thing my mom always says is, is Jerry looked like he was close to death. And my dad always goes, nah, the man looked like he was going to live forever. Um, and it's always so interesting. So man. In all of the deadhead circles, that was the thing. Like, you, there were people that just did not want to hear it. Yeah. And then there were other people that just did not want to let it go. Yeah. And I was in the middle. But I actually, because I, I knew I had personal relationships with people in that world. And I was... Uh, around to see things uh, in various phases so I, I there there was a long-term concern that ebbed and flowed among people and, and there was a sense that he really probably fucking was immortal in spite of himself and so yeah. the, and people were neither shocked nor surprised or, or neither that pe maybe people were surprised um weren't surprised but they were shocked when he died um, because it, anybody who had saw him in that period would, should not have been surprised that he might have died. Yeah. Anyway, carry yeah. on. I'm sorry. No, you're good. Thank you for those thoughts. Um, yeah, this. I think this show is a really strong opener. I often find, and I've said this plenty of times on this podcast, but David Gans hasn't heard it before. Um, <laughs> I often find that it usually takes me a couple of songs to really click with a dead show. A, for me to get in the groove, but also the players on stage take a couple of, of songs to really get into each other's headspace and where they are that given day, that given show. Um, I thought this Mississippi Half Step was generally a really strong opener. The, it just had a good energy. Jerry felt very energized. The harmonies had some good energy. The, the Rio Grandio part is a little too straightforward dynamically, but Jerry roars and the crowd cheers, and that's cool. There's some really yeah. nice Jerry-Bobby-Vince interplay towards the end. Um, very sensitive. Um, this, yeah, is a really fun walking blues. The drummers especially are, are making this work for me. Um, music isn't a competition, but Vince did have my favorite solo of walking blues. <laughs> um, and then we get to Peggio. Uh, it's just a very dreamy Peggio. Uh, the mm. jams especially uh, feel very dreamy. Uh, the use of dynamics is really nice. And I was especially impressed with the counter melody that Phil was playing on the Peggio. His, his line was not, as, as Phil Lesh often does, was not a bass line so much as a, a counter melody. And it was really neat to hear what he was doing on this Peggio. Um... Yeah, me and my uncle Big River is fun. It's it's zippy and energetic. Uh, some tight transition between the two songs, 
uh, really joyful ornamentation from Vince in, in Big River. Um, we get to Stagger Lee. I do, okay, question for the room, just to see if I'm just hearing things or if other people heard this. Yeah. Did anyone else hear Jerry burp while singing Stagger Lee? <laughs> I did not. There, there is a point early on in the I song need to hear that this. I swear he burps into Mike. Anyway, um, it's a good staggerly. It's joyful in the way that the song can be at its best. Uh, this show in, in general is just a good vibe. Um, it's, it's a lot of fast songs, and even the songs that can be on the slower side are played relatively fast. Um, it's probably as close to a, a brought to you by the letter C show as you're going to get in the 90s. Um, and it's generally working for me. We then get to the Cassidy um, it's a fast Cassidy, but surprisingly sensitive. It's on the tamer side, and that's not really a complaint, because Cassidy is a song that can support that. Uh, and then I really enjoyed, again, Bobby, Jerry, and Vince have some really fun interplay in the first jam, and then I really enjoyed where we get in the second jam. It gets cool, and it gets spacey. I agree. I don't, I don't know if it's Bobby coming in too soon, or what, but at the very least, Bobby and the rest of the band are not on the same page about when we are starting the, the Flight of the Seabirds section. Um, and then you stole my notes on, on Don't Ease Me and You said the words boogie-woogie, and I was like, what the hell am I supposed to say now? <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, it's generally... Uh, it's a, a boogie, yeah. It's, yeah, it's got a good boogie-woogie feel. It's not the strongest of the set by any means, but uh, it generally works for me. So those conclude my thoughts on set one. All right. Set two brought us Picasso Moon, Big Railroad Blues, playing in the band into Uncle John's band. Then we got Drums in Space, Vinnie Gang's brand new song, Samba in the Rain, into All Along the Watchtower, Standing on the Moon, and into Love Light. And then the encore for this night was I Fought the Law. Um, and now I get to do this this time. David Gans, what were your thoughts on set number two? Uh, again, it was better than I remembered it. <laughs> nice. Um, I, I'm one of the people that was always happy to hear something new and was even willing to welcome things like Picasso Moon. You'd be amazed that there was objection to the song among various people, some of whom I thought were intelligent critics of the band. Also, Moon have... was objected to? Yes. Oh, that's surprising. I mean, yeah. In the same way that Victim or the Crime is, in this, uh, that somehow it was an affront to the hippie vibe or something. I have no fucking idea, but it, it just... I thought it was fascinating, and in, in particularly that song and Victim, that Bobby work these songs out in front of us. He did the same thing with the Saint of Circumstance and Lost Sailor back in 79. We got to be privy to his creative process as he was developing these songs and the ideas would come along and, and get shifted around and lock into place and then we'd know where the song goes. I, I'm, I was always happy to hear a song like Picasso Moon because, yeah. of, because of that. It was like Plus, it, the lyrics are great. You know, it's just, it it came out of Barlow. John Perry Barlow was I, I. There was a time when I referred to him as the Lord Mayor of Cyberspace because mm. he. I have him on on tape 
1986 saying that he didn't think he wanted to be involved in the online world because it was like CB radio and it involved having a handle. And within a couple of years, John Perry Barlow was so deeply into the internet and was so much a part of the culture of understanding it and uh, helping to navigate it that he wound up being a truly legendary figure in that world. What was his handle, I, if you remember? He was, on the well, his user ID was Barlow. It the yeah. handle. He he objected to the, having a handle. Because Handel was a reference to the craze in the 1970s of Citizens Band Radio. Yeah, yeah. In in the 70s, there, there suddenly there was a hit song, you know, from a guy called C.W. McCall, and C.B. Right, see, the, and and so that that became this momentary fad. So that oh. it, Barlow dismissed the idea oh, okay. of online communication. By thinking that it must be like CB. Like a continuation of the CB fad. Uh, or I guess so. But it, okay. he was very, very quickly disabused of that and became somebody who not only understood it, but he helped the world understand it and did some really important things. Um, the milieu that he's describing in that song is South of Market in the Land of Ruin is where all of these... Uh, internet startups and uh, this was in the era of raves and smart drinks and shit like that and i was i didn't participate in that world very much even though i was in the well which was one of the online communities that was kind of where all this stuff was taking place barlow was very much a part of that but he was also one of the founders of the electronic frontier foundation which is a genuine and really, really important institution in the history of, of uh, internet law, among other things. So Marla was playing a significant role and partying up with all these freaks. So that's what that song is about. And if you listen to it and you listen to those lyrics, it's kind of describing people and situations that I'm vaguely familiar with from that era. So that gives it a little extra fun for me. Any other thoughts about set two? Uh, it's all just fine. And I really was very happy to hear a new song, too. I mean, yeah. I was always happy to hear a new song. And Samba in the Rain was just fine with me. I knew Vince. I had no expectations of Vince. You know, a lot of people just found Vince cheesy and they couldn't stand his instrumental sounds. And part of that was not his fault at all. Mm-hmm. When when Vince joined the band, remember, uh, Bruce Hornsby came along to sit at the grand piano, which denied Vince one of his most important instruments. Right. And Jerry decided not to have the Hammond B3 organ brought along, which denied Vince another one of his most important instruments. That relegated him to doing ancillary keyboards you know since yeah, since work, yeah. and and uh electric piano and things like that so he mm -hmm. was working in a way his musical palette was crowded out partially by bruce there's no fault of his own i mean you know that it's it, but vince's entry into the band was through a sort of a narrower channel than he deserved Mm -hmm. And also, Bob Braylove was the 
digital librarian and the guy that was feeding the sounds to Vince. That is recounted in in my book, This Is All a Dream We Dreamed, an oral history of the Grateful Dead. Bob Brelove talked about feeding sounds to Vince, and Vince had a pedal so he could mix in the sounds from Bob or he could use the more conventional keyboards that were in front of him. But um, so Vince had a limited role in a funny way. So I was very happy to hear him get a whole song to himself. And he got to play pretty cool stuff on it. And uh, but I, I was starting to say I got to know Vince a little bit. And he was I, I was also I knew the tubes, the band that he came from yeah. was a really, yeah. really wonderful band that was like a social critics. They were they were a satirical band as you know, they were like a satirical rock and roll band that was making fun of pop culture. And they'd set up, you know, walls of TV sets and, and shit in clubs and do this media critique, you know. So Vince came from a world of both a real deep respect for pop music and rock music and a real uh, irreverence for everything. So he came to the dead in, and I think at a time when they were... You know, things were kind of winding down in the Grateful Dead's world and bringing a guy in that sort of wanted to play sort of calliopes and and flashing neon and stuff was maybe wasn't as welcome as it it would have been if they were a younger and more vigorous bunch at the time. Mm. Now, this yeah. is me speculating in retrospect, but yeah. I knew some of those people fairly well, and I I felt bad for Vince that he didn't get a warmer welcome from the crowd at times. Yeah, yeah. no, thanks for that. <clears throat> uh, I will say that Samba was warmly welcomed by the crowd. Um, again, with the awe, you could hear the crowd reaction, and they were going pretty wild for it. So I'll just oh, jump in oh, with my... Something else I meant yeah. to tell you guys. Earlier, yeah. in between the songs, and I'm surprised none of you has mentioned this, you can hear between the songs the crowd going, turn it up, turn, turn it, it up. up, yes. turn yeah. it up. Um, did, did, yeah. did none of you note that? That was... Uh, I had it. It was before playing it. in the band, especially. Yep. Right okay. after Big Railroad Blues, yeah. Well, there, there's a story behind that. That Did you know that they changed uh, Sound Men earlier in the year, right? Hmm. Yeah. That Dan Healy was fired earlier in 1994, and John Cutler came on board uh, as the front of house guy. John had been, of course, the producer and the staff engineer in the studio, and he'd also done Jerry's live sound at times too. So he was the he propinquity is destiny in the Grateful Dead world, and there he was. So he got the gig. But his attitude towards sound was very different from Dan Healy's, for better and for worse. And one of the things he believed in was not running the everything so damn loud. So the audience was used to being uh, a little bit more literally bowled over <laughs> and were demanding something from John. I don't know whether he uh, um, complied or not. Right. But cool. that, that's the reason why, because the sound really was quieter or less loud yeah mm. and and it was uh you know kind of um you know I, I think the crowd probably would have wanted big railroad blues to be louder uh because um it was a bust out uh they hadn't played it in a while uh it's always a fun one to hear live i love what they were doing or i always love what they do with Big railroad blues and i think tonight was no different um and yeah the crowd reacts well to that but then you hear turn it up turn it up as the band segues into playing in the band 
I thought this was a really boppy, uh, had a really boppy song section, uh, great flow to all the little pieces that they do there. The jam was jazzy and it was hanging on by a thread. So I was kind of, um, you know, but it was, it was exciting um, to hear the, whether they would pull it off. And they actually did. They, they made some interesting noises and uh, interesting sounds on playing in the band. Um, nothing really moving, but it was interesting to me. Uh, I did like Uncle John's band. Uh, they, they, they were able to pull off playing in the band um, into Uncle John's band, and the reward was a very sweet toe-tapping version of Uncle John's band. I did listen to Drums in Space. Drums uh, gets really awesome with some excellent beam work. If I had to describe it, I would call it sci-fi movie climax music. Um, <laughs> yeah, we try to we try to put into words what is happening in Drums in Space, and it's very hard to do, but uh, Nob is better at it than I. Um, I, oh, and then at the end of, of space, there was this kind of anticipatory transition. I knew I knew Samba was coming up, but the audience didn't, uh, into uh, Samba. And it starts off with percussion, and uh, Vinny's doing this interesting vocalization. He's going like, Bruh! which is like really cool to hear. Uh, he was, uh, you know, com- or he's uh, conducting the band. He's saying like, do it again. He's, you know, it was kind of cool to hear them work. Uh, live on Samba, and it was a really interesting version. It was um, it was a better, it was a thought out version. It was m- more deliberate than other Sambas that I've heard. Uh, there was mm. a lot of try in the song, like they were really trying to make the song work, and it did. I, I, Samba is not one that I rate very highly, but I will rate this uh, first Samba on six eight ninety four uh, very highly. I liked it a lot, um, and the crowd uh, agreed. However, we get into Watchtower, which is somewhat of a puzzling transition it was, i wrote now for something completely different um i it was very very fast and and because of the quickness the repetitiveness of the song kind of shone through uh but then the band kind of takes it back down a notch into standing on the moon it was a little tame and a little tentative at first it lacked that kind of power and punch that you want uh however the emotionality really did ratchet up during the be with you sections um jerry uh starts off that section and, and, you know, you could tell that he was getting emotional and, and bringing out the emotionality, but then his guitar solo really brought it out a uh, great use of a vibrato um, on that ending solo. And then there were even bigger be with you's at the end. It was a really lovely standing on the moon, um, really powerful version. Um, Love light was uh, okay to kind of bring uh, the set to, to a close. And I thought that I thought the law was a fun little ditty. Uh, knob. Sure. Um, <laughs> sometimes. Okay. Um, I think the big thing that stands out to me in this second set is, to me, it's all about tension and release. Um, often with the song choices, I find that it's a lot of songs that I would describe as as tense or dissonant or or angular or whatever you want to say, yeah. followed up by songs that I would describe as fun and and zippy and chipper and that contrast is a lot of fun to play with. Uh, it's it's the foundation of a lot of jam and improvisatory music, and I find that they're really doing it here with the song choices. Um, I've also always had a soft spot for Picasso Moon. Um, I think it's fun because there is no other song that does what it does. It has that angular and dissonant vibe, but it is also still incredibly fun and incredibly dancey. Mm. Uh, this, this version, I think, really nails that. Vince has a really fun energy for this one. Um, and then Tension followed by Release here. 
uh, Big Railroad Blues is is just joyful. It's a, a really strong Jerry vehicle. Vince gets some really good licks in, and then a really hot solo. This is a, a good night for Vince fans. Yep. Um, and then again, we get to playing in the band, which just the jam was very sinister. It was very really? spooky. It was yeah. very dissonant. Jerry was playing with an especially distorted tone over the top. And then again, we go from tension to release as it mellows out through Uncle John's band. We have made our way through the dark clouds of the storm, and now we are looking at a nice blue sky. Um, Jerry's guitar almost... Uh, he's playing with fewer uh, like pedals and, and alterations to his tone, and it almost sounds acoustic in the way that he could get his, his electric guitars to in the late 90s. Um, it's got some tight harmonies. The band is super on top of it in terms of like the form and like knowing where the hits happen, which they don't always at this stage of the game. Um, it peaks. There's a great build of energy that peaks really well at the last chorus before mm-hmm. simmering back down to a dreamy jam that takes us into drums. Not to keep reusing the phrase here, but this drums in space in and of itself feels like tension and release, yeah. uh, where. The drums is very intense. It's full of toms and other low drums. Uh, Kreutzmann is especially on fire, just playing with this really bombastic intensity. Uh, and then it gets quiet and full of pitched percussion. Uh, the space especially feels uh, a lot more harmonious. It's very sparse still, but they're not really playing with dissonance as much as they often do during space. Uh, and then we get to Samba, which I think is a really strong Samba. The, in the playing, you can hear the band have a passion for the song that they don't always. Yeah, that's good I, way to put it. I've always mm-hmm. been a big Samba in the Rain person. The band occasionally sounds bored when playing it. Uh, but this one, there is a passion. It's just a lot of fun. It's very playful. Uh, the harmonies are relatively tight. Um, the the one, uh, I don't know, major gripe that the two of us are going to get into is uh, is over Watchtower. Um, mm. I generally enjoyed this Watchtower. Um, again, I'm going to keep talking about tension and release. But the intro is interesting because they're still in the Samba in the rain tempo. And then you can hear them go, oh, shit. Watchtower <laughs> is a slower song than this. How do we slow <laughs> this down? And it's really cool for the first minute or so. Just hearing them figure it out in real time. Uh, and then we get to the Watchtower, which I, I think the energy was really good. I felt it was able to get quiet and focused and then explode with energy and sound. You'll never guess which words I would use to describe that feeling. Um, Jerry's solos are fun. Vince's keyboard contributions are strong. The drummers are on fire. I, I enjoyed Love Light a lot. Uh, and then it dissolves into Love, you mean standing watchtower. on the moon yeah you said lovely question oh, sorry wa- i mean watchtower okay. watchtower was that tension or was that release i think it was, was it both i think it was both within the watchtower itself it okay. felt like every right. verse was tension and every jam was release um okay. as a like we... set list feel i would say that uh watchtower was the tension to standing on the moon's release okay. um and then, yeah, it's, uh, I think this Standing on the Moon gets better the later it goes on. Like you were saying, it's, it's not Jerry's strongest vocal on this song by any stretch, but it's, it's not a bad rendition. 
Uh, Jerry's second solo is especially nice. I'm not sure how I feel about the like MIDI strings that they throw in on the bridge. Like they sound nice, but I think they're overdoing it. Standing on the Moon is a song that I think shines in its simplicity. Um, but that's I, a great I'd for li- another day. I like what Vince adds with the with the synth there. Like it, 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 there's like a majesty to it. it you know, yeah. I, um, even when he does like it's more like a choir sound. I really, I really like what Vince adds to that sound in general. Mm. Yeah, I generally was appreciating Vince's contributions in this show, but uh, Standing on the Moon was was not one that did it for me. Um, and then Love Light is fine. It's shorter and energetic. It doesn't really. They don't do anything with it. They just do a, a four minute Love Light. Um, yeah. But Bob sounds fine. He's having fun, uh, and it's a, an energetic way to close out the show. And then, you know, I thought the law was generally fine. Uh, Jerry sounded pretty good. I liked what Vince's Dreamy Keys added. Uh, I'm probably never going to listen to it again, but I'm not. I was not upset listening to it when I did. <laughs> so yeah, I I liked this show a lot more than I expected to. I feel like that has been the the general post-show discussion theme of these past 94 shows that we yeah. had. Of all of us have been, this was way better than we anticipated. Absolutely. <laughs> yep, you're right. Um, moving on uh, to our Book of the Dead. I think I know everyone's answers to this, but we will ask it anyway. Uh, does this show make either of your Book of the Dead? I'm going to jump in and say no. Nob may feel differently. No, I'm also going to say no. It would be oh. if I was doing like a, a pamphlet of 94, uh, this would be on there. But no, it's it's not Book of the Dead to me. Uh, and uh, David, just so you know, the, uh, the Book of the Dead is uh, any show that we deem uh, above and beyond. Uh, and we add it to our... Um, fictional book of the dead uh so we have I'm, a i'm going to abstain because i have no frame of reference for judging here uh, which set would we prefer set number one or set number two i'm, I'm always going to be a set two guy almost always mm. set two for david gans fig set one or set two i'm gonna go with two i'll give some bits due oh nob set one or set two it's purely academic, but I actually was generally impressed with the the tightness of set one in a way that you don't always get from '90s Dead. Though I will say that that set two had among my favorites with the the play in Uncle John's band and the uh, Watchtower. Since there is four of us on this show, I will share my vote as well. Uh, I'm going with set two. Um, I am normally a set one boy. Uh, however, uh, Picasso Moon, love it. Yeah. Uh, and Samba was good. Um, and there really was nothing else that I did not like in such a... So, uh, yeah. So after uh, this podcast portion, please stick around, everybody, for set two of June 8th, 1994. All right. Who would be our show MVP? Uh, Fig, I'll throw it to you first. Uh, Gang Vinny. Rise up. Nice. Nice. Uh, uh, David Gans, do you have a show MVP, or would you have a show MVP for this I'm show? I'm going to go along with the crowd and say Vinny. Nob? Um, 
I if Vinny had not already been said, I would have said Vinny. But I'm actually going to give it to Kreutzmann here. I did find myself often appreciating what the uh, drummers were adding energy-wise. Two ends, Kreutzmann. Nope. I did not know that. Once a copy editor, always a copy <laughs> editor. I had no idea. Uh, and I'm going to go with Vinny as well, uh, because I... Um, I can't have the Vinny gang going against me. Um, so Vinny, show MVP. Um, for our Reddit comments this week, uh, we actually have quite a few. Yeah. Uh, our uh, top voted comment was the fine <laughs> folks of Reddit uh, also have voted uh, Vinny as their show MVP. Um, as uh, the top post for this week's show was, this post has been approved by gang Vinny. And Vinny, of course, has his... Um, deal with it fake sunglasses on with a <laughs> virtual joint hanging out of his mouth on this meme so um that is the top rated post of uh the week uh however uh, we also have a few other ones um doc man 427 another 94 show vinny's getting a lot of rotation on this podcast the first samba is interesting i know this song isn't universally loved but i enjoy it depending on how well it's performed the crowd at this show seems to dig it um as well as we had one person um from this uh on reddit that was in attendance to this show uh that was one grateful dude um one grateful dude said thanks for asking i'll have to give the shows a listen again um largely uninspired is my main overall remembrance the may 93 cal expo run was a different story quite good with some excellent highlights adding to that feeling that things weren't quite right by this time and that the downhill that run yeah <laughs> i was gonna say it's pretty much are, are we, you one grateful are, dude <laughs> yeah well i am we but not, that's not my handle <laughs> oh, oh i love that i'm a uh, grateful dude but you know i love that um i made the huge regrettable mistake of purging two precious collections at different times and the why am i keeping all this shit i no longer need to use stiff phases and stages of my life boy have i been there uh <laughs> my tapes have uh my tapes the first thing he got rid of was his tapes after finally hawking my two hk single well decks and second is he got rid of all of his yeah, uh, ticket stubs except these two. Oh, fool yeah that's um that's one of those things i'm uh i'm a big i don't have many concert tickets however i do have a quite the collection of um nascar tickets and sporting event tickets and um yeah that's one of those things i'll never get rid of is old tickets to anything because yeah you just it's not the same i've just got a yeah i've just got a big uh book full of screenshots of emails from Ticketmaster. Oh, oh, <laughs> Just reminding you of how much fees you, you gave them for that <laughs> ticket. But I will say one grateful dude did, did something really cool, because uh, I asked if there were any photos or recollections for the pod. And what they did was they um, gave me a, a photo of this really great, I guess a watercolor? No, this is like an oil painting of, nah, of Jerry playing guitar. Yeah, with uh, some photos kind of done you know, uh, of Jerry throughout his life. And then um, close-ups of, I guess, those two final shows that one grateful dude went to at the Cal Expo Center. Um, I think they said that they were there for the whole run. So the last show that they went to was June 10th of uh, 94. It was a really nice-looking concert ticket there. And uh, thanks very much for for uh, participating. 20, appreciate the story. $26.50. 
general admission to get into oh. the Cal Expo Amphitheater in 1994. Um, it went to Rex Foundation. The money went to the Rex oh, Foundation. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, David, do you want to uh, chime in on the Rex Foundation? Give us and the audience a little bit of... Um... Yeah, like a quick history of, of uh, the benefits and stuff. Uh, we often run into the Rex Foundation. We've talked about it a little bit, but none of us have yeah. the frame of reference that you do. So Yeah, the Grateful Dead had a long history of doing benefits. When they were a neighborhood band, they were constantly doing benefits to pass the hat for one cause or another. And they uh, uh, were always doing stuff in, in the early 80s. I, I remember in, uh, in like the winter of 83, Three, maybe they did a series of shows uh, at the Warfield Theater. I think that they called the Shotgun Benefits because they had so many people that they were going to split the money up with. And I think at that point, Danny Rifkin said, "You know, we should just form a nonprofit to organize mm. and 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 focus this work." And so they did. And they Bill Graham and Bill Walton and a lovely dental surgeon, oral surgeon by the name of Bernie Bildman, were on the board. And a few other people that I don't know, and various band members were. So the Rex Foundation was a, a, an organization that overlapped significantly with the Grateful Dead, but had a board of its own and still does. The executive mm -hmm. director of the board, Rex Foundation now is Cameron Sears, who was the Grateful Dead's manager for many years as well. So there's still plenty of continuity. I'm not sure who's on the Rex board these days. Mm -hmm. But it, it's, it has always been an organization that was aimed at the grassroots and giving small amounts of money where it'll do significant amounts of good. And they've instituted annual prizes for uh, things like for, for musicians and for social activists and things. And they give grants to organizations that are doing important things. And again, on a level where 10 grand can make a big difference rather than dealing in hundreds or thousands or whatever of dollars um so they uh, they do good things and you can go to rexfoundation.org and find out what they're currently up to they just right this moment they just opened an, an auction an online auction for their annual event which i think is the, the uh, hot tuna show i believe it's december 2nd at the fillmore is the annual uh, uh, rex foundation benefit which is one of Hot Tuna's last electric gigs. But in connection with that, they're doing an online auction. So if you went to rexfoundation.org right now, you could look, find out about the auction. You can find out how to donate to the Rex Foundation at any time because it's a regular old charity. And you can also take a look and see what they do and who gets their money because they always have this stuff about their... Uh, their beneficiaries to help the world know about the good things that they are helping with. Very excellent. And I yeah, go, we'll... you guys. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, we, yeah we're. Um, do you have to go <laughs> right now, or can we just wrap well, it up? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Okay. All um, right. Next week on the pod, we are featuring October 9th, nineteen eighty, at the Warfield Theater in San Francisco, California. And let's go ahead and do our bookkeeping here for the evening. As always, please go ahead and smash that subscribe button and like and share this podcast with any and all of your Grateful Dead and non-Grateful Dead loving friends and family. Um, you may find us, of course, at wherever podcasts are downloaded. However, if you happen to use a service that loosely rhymes with I'm a little teapot a fi 
You won't find us on that one. Uh, however, you will find us on the majority of other major podcast platforms. If you like to get your podcast the old-fashioned way, please reach out to us on the web at helponthewaypod.podbean.com. If you would like to email us, you may do so at helponthewaypod at gmail.com. You may also communicate with us on Reddit at reddit.com slash r slash grateful dead. And as well, we are on YouTube at youtube.com slash helponthewaypod. Um, first and foremost, Mr. David Gans, thank you so much yeah. for joining it's been us. Fun this evening um awesome. this has been it's been fun for you it's been incredible for us yeah. um we have all been fans um i don't want to kiss your ass too much but again <laughs> thank you thank you for, for joining it's very us. very kind of you to say i always learn things when i'm interviewed this way you know all, jerry taught me that it's one of the many things that he observed that i thought was pretty interesting it's like you learn a lot about yourself when you're answering these questions because you don't really Sometimes you don't think about something until you have to put it into words, you know. So it sort of helps to clarify my own uh, thinking about various things to have discussed them with you. And so I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, we're happy to have discussed them with you. And anything you want to plug before we let you go? Well, sure. I have a brand new book called uh, Improvised Lives. It's a book of my photos. And I have some very interesting offstage stuff. It's not just concert photography. And the stories to go with them, some of the stuff I told you tonight is covered in there in more detail and some of the other interesting things that happens, like the day I brought Bob Weir to the office of the mayor of San Francisco for a photo op. That's a story you might find uh, (laughs) enjoyable in that. I have three other books for sale, um, or two other books for sale um, on my online store and also tons of music. I know nobody buys music anymore, but I have lots of CDs of largely original music available also in my online store. And my online store is called perfectible.net. And I play a live show every day at four o'clock California time with a few exceptions here and there, like when I have a live gig somewhere. And that happens on YouTube, and it happens on my Facebook page, D. Gans Music, and it also happens on a really fun platform called Streamstock.tv that all of you should check out. Very cool. So perfectable.net, not perfectable.net is where to go to buy my stuff and also hit that tip jar. Thank you. All right. Once again, thank you, Dave Gans, for joining us tonight. And please stick around for set two of June 8th, 1994. And thank you once again, of course, for listening to the Help on the Way podcast.
back of the Oh, my God. 
standing on the moon I'm feeling so alone in me There's a middle place
envision true Standing on the moon But I would rather be with you Somewhere in San Francisco On a back porch in July Just looking up heaven At this crescent in the sky In the sky Standing on the moon With nothing
I don't want to stole my 